China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Lynette Ong, Professor of Political Science at the University of Toronto. Today we'll be discussing her new book, Outsourcing Repression, Everyday State Power in Contemporary China. Lynette, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jude. So first, I wanted to ask just a, a bit about your, your background. I'm curious, how did you decide you wanted to be a political scientist focusing on China's political system? So my initial training was actually in economics. That was before graduate school. But I think with the rise of, of China, I think it is really impossible to understand what is going on in its economy, in its society, without understanding politics. Which is why I've I've decided to study uh, political science in graduate school. But my first book was actually about political economy, political economy of uh, the credit system as well as central local relations. So in so in a sense, outsourcing repression is an extension of that. After my first book, I wanted to understand urbanization. Right, this is about ten, twelve years ago. When Li Keqiang first came to power, he said that China wants to promote urbanization as an engine of growth. So I thought that is a huge topic. But I went in there, I talked to people, this is across several cities and across several provinces back in 2012, 2013. What I heard was that people kept on telling me about being intimidated by gangsters, by thugs. At the time, that sort of thing was really unheard of in China, especially among Western audience. I was very curious because it was apparently very prevalent, very commonplace, but no one has actually kind of written about that, aside from a number of kind of newspaper reports here and there. So I decided to dive into that. And that took me several years to think about how do I transform what I observe into an academic product. Great. You know, before we start, or I guess diving right into the the book, maybe more accurately, I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about how you did the research for this book. I know you did pretty extensive field work. Could you just tell us a bit about what was the time period of that field work and, and how did you go about conducting that sort of on the ground research? So I wanted to have, I was very conscious of, you know, China is a very huge, huge place. And, and I have that sort of appreciation for the diversity in China, also in my first first book, which I did studies on based on. I went to, I, th- I think, five different provinces. But this book is was even more extensive because I wanted to cover use of states, use of violent as well as nonviolent strategies over time and across space. So I started off with uh, Hefei in the middle of China, and then I went to Western China, spent... Uh, Quite a bit of time in Chengdu and its outskirts. I think I went to Chengdu about four times over the course of 10 years. And then gradually moved to central China and then coastal cities. Spent time in Shanghai, Guangzhou, Tianjin, Beijing, as well as Zhengzhou. So covered about, I think, eight cities in total over the course of nine years. Just a follow-up question to that is, as I was just reading the book and reading the section where you described the field work, and just hearing you now, I guess a two-part question is, could you write this book again now? In other words, could you go to China and conduct similar field work? And as a follow-up, if the answer is no, or, or the answer is it would be much more constrained, how is the field of political scientists focusing on China, how is it adapting to the new restrictions in political realities? 
Yeah, so, you know, I see myself as very lucky in the sense that I caught the last train. And even in the last 20 to 30% of my field research was at the time where I think field research was extremely challenging from 2016 onwards. So I did work in 2016 in Shanghai and Guangzhou. It's very challenging. Uh, people on the ground were very wary and I could hardly get any officials to speak to me. Uh, usually people that I could rely on to have their doors open, speaking quite, quite frankly, they were not, they were not willing to speak at all. So I, so I see myself as kind of lucky in a, in, in a sense. I think it would be very challenging to do this sort of ethnographic research, on underground research uh, in China for the foreseeable future. That was my primary means of, method- of methodology, but I also have you know, other sort of secondary data as well as content analysis of government uh, documents. But my primary, primary methodology was, was ethnographic research. And uh, I, think, I think the field is really changing. It has to change. It has to adapt. So people are looking at increasingly at open source data being made available by the Chinese government, available in the society. But we have to wonder, you know, if, if it's from the government, why is the government making certain data available? Because it is not making everything available. So it wants you to see certain things, right? And in my case, I did make use of government-made available data, which is... So I did a content analysis and text analysis of uh, government policy documents with respect to how urbanization should be conducted. So this is instruction given by central and provincial governments to local officials on the ground as to how they should really conduct urbanization. So that articulates kind of government intent of how urbanization should be conducted, what sort of strategies that they should use, and there's a bias towards nonviolent strategies. But then I could contrast that with what I actually see uh, on the output side. Right? So I could contrast input, which is intention, with output. But if we are not able to see output side, we cannot go to the ground and see what is really happening. We can, we can only you know, analyze things from the intention, which, is, which doesn't equal output. But I think as long as we are wary of what our constraints are, that is fine. But, but I think you know, researchers need to understand what we see is not, may not be exactly what is happening on the ground. One of the core concepts, or maybe the core concept in the book is just talking about this everyday state power, or everyday repression. And I wondered if you could explain what these concepts are and why they're critical for important for understanding how the Communist Party governs on a day-to-day basis. Sure. So in outsourcing repression, I use urbanization really as a window of observation to understand how the Chinese Communist Party, the party state, represses society. When I say repress, most of that is not violent, coercive type of repression. It's so low-level, low-scale that it could be seen as generally a sort of governance model. So, you know, party state goes in there and wants to implement a lot of policies. right? It penetrates society through non-state actors that are trusted by society. And with that, they are able to gain compliance to a huge range of policies. So despite being an authoritarian state, policy compliance are very high in China. We can see that from the first two and a half years of zero COVID, for instance. 
policy compliance is very high, the party states generally enjoy very high legitimacy, particularly among the central government. And I would argue that that is because on the ground, it is able to implement policy so the interaction, the interface between state and society is actually societal members being mobilized by the state to do the state bidding. So from the society, when they receive the state, they are actually, they do not come across people wearing uniform or the state as some abstract entities that is very remote. On an everyday basis, the implementation of policies is actually done by non-state actors, people they live with in the neighborhood for decades. They call aunties and uncles. There's a huge amount of social trust. With that, a lot of social capital. So there's a lot of buy-in to the policies. And if you refuse to buy in, the consequences are, are actually not the sort of punishment that we think about in an authoritarian state. The consequences are social pressure, are being, being deemed a social outcast. If you don't want to do that, you are seen as someone who doesn't blend into our community. And the sort of cost in a Chinese society, which Guanxi is of utmost importance, is actually tremendous. Tremendous. Which is why I think compliance is very high. People receive coercion and repression. They don't even see that as repression. Because it's, the policies is being implemented on the ground by non-state actors. They see it as in a part of society community work that I need to... Uh, to say yes to. We may not know the answer to this, Lynette, but if you do, are there other political regimes or systems which have a similar way of enforcing through, as you said, this sort of social suasion or pressure? Or, or is China unique in how it leverages and mobilizes sort of non-state actors, the IEs and uncles of the world? You may, you may not know, but I was just curious, how unique is this system? That's a great question. I'm actually doing another project after outsourcing repression, comparing different communist states. This is like former Soviet Union, Germany, and, you know, a stark contrast. So China is a country since Mao's time that mobilizes society, what I would call outsourcing repression. It outsources repression to the society, part of the society to mobilize the general masses in the pursuit for state objectives. On the other extreme is a country like former Soviet Union under Stalin that spent a lot of resources, built a very strong secret police force, and then used a secret police force to inflict violence on the, on the society. So it's a very institutional approach. The other end of the spectrum is people like Mao mobilizes society. Now, now we have to think about preconditions. I think China goes the way that it 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 does, and it's still going on because it's a society that could be mobilized, and we cannot say that about a lot of society. Certainly, doesn't happen in Canadian society. I don't even know my neighbors, right? How could they possibly come and mobilize me? So, I I think in China, the the, the state enjoys a great deal of of legitimacy, and there's a lot of social capital on the ground. That you know, in in the sixties. Mao mobilized the Red Guards really to conduct repression on the society and eventually to get back at Liu Shaoqi. Right? So it's a, it's a boomerang way of getting rid of your elite opponents. And, and in the 60s, China was one that has, been, has gone through centuries of very repressive rule under, under imperial dynasties. 
and you know years of uh, foreign humiliation. Uh, so when Mao said that you know it is right to rebel, you know those young people in high school and universities took that very seriously because they felt you know tremendously empowered to do so. And in today's China, those aunties and uncles, communism still have an influence over them. So when the state says that you know go out and mobilize people, they feel that they are actually empowered. They feel that they are contributing to the community. They are entrusted with this important task of persuading the community to meet the state's objective, be it urbanization, be it zero, zero, zero COVID. That's like 70% of the time on certain conditions, especially in urbanization where there's a lot of material stakes involved, the state do actually do give them carrots, right? In, so in my book, in chapter six, I talk about early birds bonuses. They bring these aunties and uncles in these brokers in the society and uh, give them early birds bonuses so they agree to sign the papers and vacate the properties, to give up their properties. And then once they are on the state side, they could then go out, be mobilized to persuade the recalcitrant households. And every recalcitrant households that they persuade to sign papers, they also get you know positive uh, reward out of it. Can I ask another follow-up on this? And it's actually prompted by your comment that you didn't know your neighbors, which I can completely empathize with. But part of that, I wonder, is about, and I mean this literally, the sort of architecture that shapes social interactions. This may be a stupid question, but it strikes me that the social element of this sort of everyday repression works best when there are tight social communities, like you would see in a, in a hutong, where you have people, you know, in a very Jane Jacobs sort of way, people out in the streets, they mill out on the streets on, on hot nights when I was living in Shanghai. You'd see people, you know, sleeping out on lawn chairs. So there was a buzz of social activity. One of the things that I heard from friends whose your parents had to move in into a, a high rise in Beijing or Shanghai is they felt like it disintegrated social connections. I wonder if urban, you know, as we see a continued drive towards urbanization and people moving up into these big, tall apartment buildings, does that actually potentially lessen the impact of the, the repressive toolkit by sort of breaking some of these social bonds? Yeah, no, that's a great, great question. So the sort of communities that I described in my book, in Shanghai, they were called low, you know, it's an older form of communities where people were allocated housing maybe 50, 60 years ago. And sometimes, you know, it date back even longer. So they have got, they, they have been neighbors for decades. But you can see, you know, communities that have undergone relocation, that have undergone chai tian, something must have happened to the social fabric. Because, you know, people move, people are asked to vacate their properties and then move to other parts of the cities. And uh, you used to live with these people, household A, B, and C, and then you were forced to, to move in, into a, in even higher-rise buildings and neighbors don't become neighbors anymore. So it definitely does something to the social fabric of the society. And so as China urbanizes over time, as people get shuffled and then into different districts and so on, it will be more and more difficult, I think, to exercise social capital to conduct the same sort of depression. So the other form of um, outsourcing depression that I describe in my book 
So so far we have talked about the non-violent strategies, and the other the other sort of violent strategies is to go out there and just hire people who are available in the market. You know, be it you know thugs and gangsters, anyone who's unemployed, willing to do a dirty job, a quick and dirty job for the government, and get paid you know on an everyday basis for a hundred yuan or hundred fifty yuan uh, a day. That is the other arm to to outsourcing depression. Yeah, maybe that's a good time to turn to the thugs for hire concept. I think you were just starting to explain what that is. You've got the sort of there's the carrot, this is the stick. Can you talk about? Just first of all, just give the listeners a, a concrete idea. Of what does a thug for hire look like? Who are these people? And then how does the state mobilize them or instrumentalize them to enforce desired you know, policies or actions? So um, in a theoretical sense, state repression, especially violent repression and coercion, usually invite resistance and backlash. They may work in intimidating people, in coercing people into com- compliance. But once violence is involved, people will want to fight to fight back if they if they could. And violence is used, it may actually implicate people who order the violence. So violent repression usually comes at a huge cost to the state, which is why it is used very, very sparingly. So the extreme example would be Tiananmen. Right? The state only used it when it really had, had to. But I think there's a way to get around the constraint of using violent repression, which is the concept behind facts for hire, which is, you know, you, you could use violent repression, but very low-grade repression. But instead of state doing it itself, you outsource to people who has got nothing to do with the state, who has got nothing to do with the state, doesn't wear government uniform, not identified with, with the state. And you get those people to use low-grade violence and to exercise repression 2 a.m. in the morning, in the middle of the night, when they are generally away from the public's gaze. That is when this, this sort of violent, covert violent outsource strategy is most effective. And most of the, the cases that I describe and, and phenomenon that I have observed of outsourcing violent repression is successful because it's under the conditions of you know people that have nothing to do with the state. State they use very low grade violence that doesn't cause any death or huge casualties, so that it wouldn't come back and implicate people who ordered the violence. Now, in cases where these conditions are not met, it has actually some local officials have been held accountable. They have been removed from office because you know death have been caused by excessive violence. I wonder if you could give us, I mean, you just gave us near the end there an example of, of what happens when this can go wrong. I wonder if you could, if there are any sort of specific examples in the book of what this either, you know, thugs for hire, either the carrots or the stick, you know, is there an idea of a sort of a, a housing demolition, you know, example or something where you could now just walk us through what this, you know, a case study or a story of what this looks like in, in concrete practice Sure. So one of the cases that I talked about was in Shanghai. So this is uh, in the former con- former French concession area, one of the most expensive real estate in the world. Uh, so I stumbled upon it, I think, in 2016 or 17. I was in Shanghai for a conference. I walk around this area and I see this huge plot of vacant land. 
So I tried to understand, and some journalists have written about the case before. So I went to talk to a couple of people, including people who have been who have lived in that that property before. So this is about the case. The violent coercion took place about fifteen years ago. Uh, real estate, you know, com- companies together with the local governments wanted to take this piece of land to develop. So they set the houses on fire. This is two a.m. in the in the morning. But an elderly couple ended up being killed, so everyone managed to escape the fire, as except the el- the elderly couple. And that be because that happened in Shanghai, there was huge media coverage, to the extent that that project was put on hold. There were people being removed from office, and until today, you still see that vacant plot plot of land. The project has ceased, and it has not been revived. I also talk about other case in Zhengzhou, where when the former party secretary was in charge, he had this reputation. Uh, some people call him Yizimei when he points his finger on the village at the map. The village would disappear, you know, overnight, because under his governorship, he demolished a lot of villages, and Zhengzhou went through tremendous urbanization just just within a couple of years. But with that speed of urbanization and demolition, you can imagine the amount of violence being being used. So a couple of years later, he was eventually removed from office, charged with corruption. And we know that corruption charge is often a cover for a lot of things that officials are responsible for. So in Zhengzhou that I described, in Kunming that I described, local officials were eventually punished because of excessive violence use. There were a lot of thugs and gangsters being hired to intimidate people and oftentimes undisciplined force were being used and that caused excessive violence, casualties, death, even, and huge uh, social media expose and eventually get local officials into trouble and help them accountable. But by and large, these cases are very rare. By and large, I think they are hugely successful. I wanted to ask about this model that you have constructed around um, outsourced repression, the various sort of types of actors. And I wonder if I can ask about really the most significant stress test of the regime recently, which is the enforcement at great cost of the zero COVID policy framework. So I guess a two-part question. One is, you know, given that you were working on this and finishing up the, the book and, and published the book during COVID-0. What about the initial successful enforcement phase? What about that did you find notable or interesting? Did it support the thesis of the book? Did you see this various types of tools used? And then my second will be, but we'll get to that in a minute, what did you make of the end of zero COVID? And again, did that reinforce the the argument in the book or did it show that maybe even some of the tools China has successfully used might start to be losing their, their sharp edge? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good question, Jude. So in the first 75%, first three quarter of zero COVID, and I think, you know, three years of zero COVID, two and a half years, I see that as huge compliance to zero COVID. China was held up as a model for how, you know, COVID policies could be successfully implemented with huge compliance. I think that could be attributed to its everyday governance model, which is just use of trusted local social actors, ranging from neighborhood committees, which I call political brokers, but more importantly, kind of social volunteers, 
ranging from aunties and uncles to sometimes you know local university students returning from Hong Kong and you know happen to be in their home cities and get recruited to become volunteer help to implement zero COVID. And they are involved in things like ad- administering tests, controlling people, you know, supplying food, delivering food, all sorts of run zhao type of you know, tasks being involved on the ground. And it's extremely labor-intensive. It also interacts with citizens on an everyday basis. And people get very agitated, but huge compliance because these are trusted local entities. So I, so I think hugely successful. The, the stress test was a, num- a number of things. When, vi- when the variant evolved to one that was so easily transmissible, it made zero COVID just unsustainable by nature. That was starting with Delta in Shanghai. And then, you know, because the variant was so, so transmissible, zero COVID became an impossible task. But then they wanted even to control people even further uh, there wasn't sufficient help, so they started to get people, recruiting people from the market. Anyone who's unemployed has just been sacked by, by, by factory closure. Any gangsters, any unemployed people, and those people who are from the, the street has no connection, social connections with the residents. They started using soft violence, intimidation, kicking, punching. We, saw, we see some of that being circulated on social media. That is when I think the, the people started questioning uh, state policies. And in Shanghai, you know, the Shanghai government didn't do a great job. They refused to let people go out to grocery stores, to, to, to the supermarket, and promised to deliver gro- groceries to the people. But groceries did not arrive on time. People were on, on the verge of starvation. People had to come together and organize into groups and then to buy things themselves from warehouses. That was when the trust started to break to break down and just things just down spiraling from there. I think as a follow-up, yeah, I'd, I'd be curious for thoughts about what the you know the the implications of the end of the protests. And I think, you know, there's a big discussion right now in Washington which is about the the resiliency of the party now, after we've seen, again, this real shock of the sudden end of the zero COVID protests, slowing economic growth. So we don't want to extrapolate too much out of this, but just curious for your thoughts on taking stock of the resiliency of the regime right now and the efficacy of its repressive toolkit. Are we seeing the edge blunted at all? Or do you think the party will yet again adapt to refine its repressive toolkit after a, you know, a bit of a, a, a wobbly period? So I think it is still too early. I mean, we have to be mothers as to what we actually do know at this point, given data, uh, limited data availability. But I do see that legitimacy is declining. I do see that trust is eroding. And I say that for a number of reasons. I think violent protests and confrontation with people at the grassroots in July August, October, November, December, particularly particularly November and December of last year, where there were a lot of clashes between between residents and Jiwei and neighborhood committees, people they are on everyday interaction with. They have to deal with Jiwei on an everyday basis on a lot of things. That sort of daily confrontation, I think is very unusual in China. 
so once that trust and that that tension is there, I mean, we have to wait and and see. You know, now that there is no protest, now we have to see that when the next stress test comes, whether or not uh, these people will have the trust again to be able to implement policies with huge compliance. But generally, I think post COVID. Chinese citizens of the party state, I think, of trust is eroding. And I think there are kind of three sets of evidence. Um, when you are unhappy with the regime, there are a couple of things that you can do. You can voice your, your discontent, which people had before the crack, the crackdown, zero COVID protests. But generally, you know, resistance and open protest is a risky behavior in China. So you have, you have voice, you have exit. A lot of people are leaving China, and I think in twenty twenty two alone, some estimates come up with you know a hundred and ten thousand wealthy individuals have left China. Most of them have destined are going or or departing from Singapore, a, a society that they are somehow familiar with because of similar political culture, right? Um, so exit voice, and some of them are immigrating to to Toronto, to Washington D.C., to New York City. And sending their kids abroad and slowly moving their assets abroad. So exit voice. If you cannot exit, if you have no means to voice and protest and to move abroad because of one reason or another, you quite you quietly quit. And I think we see this emerging social discourse of camping, quiet quitting. It's a sign of people they quietly quit because they do not see tomorrow has a better future than today. So why work so hard when?、Uh, When you don't see a brighter future, and and I think this is this is new in China.、Uh, Post nineteen seventy nine, things have gone better considerably. Every year has gone better. Okay, there is economic crisis, there is there is recession, but the pie is still growing, so people still feel better. But now that the pie is not growing, you know, is growing at two point five three percent, immense pressure, and when we have redistribution. Becomes you know increasingly increasingly difficult. I think that sort of quiet quitting it's it's just as powerful a sign of resistance to the trust and to the legitimacy of the of the party state. People cannot go out to protest, but they would quietly quit. And what does it mean for the future of China and the future of the CCP? Partly because I've got a rapidly deteriorating toddler to my right here,、um, and also I think that was a just a really interesting. Point to end the discussion, or actually more to indicate to listeners that the best place to hear more of this is by picking up a copy of Lynette's book, which is really rich and especially we didn't discuss it, but so much of the book is actually just drawing on this the fieldwork, and so there's lots of really interesting and important sort of granular detail of what this looks like in addition to a rich theoretical model. And I will say Lynette has been writing a lot in. Uh, forums like foreign affairs, foreign policy, especially since the the protest movement, the A4 protests,、um, and the end of zero COVID emerged. So,、um, really bringing to bear this model on how we think about the resiliency and effectiveness of China's repressive toolkit. So,、uh, we would also recommend that listeners just check out Lynette's writings in the public sphere. And I see as well that behind Lynette, it is snowing for you, and it is snowing for us in Maryland. Which is good because we've had an unseasonably warm winter. Which I just, as a native Vermonter, I find it offensive that you can go a whole winter without snow. So glad to see where you have to come to Toronto. We have gotten a lot of snow as well. 
So again, the book is Outsourcing Repression, Everyday State Power in Contemporary China, uh, published by Oxford University Press. Highly recommended. And, and Lynette, I want to thank you for, uh, for your time and your insights. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.